Sieste. Yeah, come on. How many of you are Mexican? Come on. What are you doing here? Now, that doesn't make sense. The Mexicans came and the gringos, they're all taking a nap. That's what's... <laughs> um, I don't know if my team's in here. I haven't seen them. This is... Can, if my team... Would you guys stand up? This is the Bethel School Supernatural Ministry team. And I apologize. Like, I usually... Uh, Every time I take a team someplace, I usually at least have a meal with them and spend some time. I haven't even seen you guys, so I am so sorry. Uh, I, anyway, I hope you're having a good time. <laughs> I go from here. What's, when do you guys fly out? Do you know, you guys driving, huh? Yeah. Poor students, that's right. Tomorrow. Oh, good. Okay, so I love you guys. Experience the Bethel teams. They're amazing. And, uh, yeah, they really are. They, they, they drove here to be with me. I just really appreciate it a lot. And I didn't even have a team for this conference. I didn't, wasn't bringing a team for this conference because the sessions are so tight and close, and I know that we don't get to do much ministry from the front, so I didn't bring a team. And then at the last minute, I, I thought, well, I'll be awesome from the coming and, and watch me do everything. And <laughs> I didn't think of that part. Sorry about that. Wasn't Graham amazing? I know. It's not really it's not really fair that God gives like some people so much intelligence and then I wonder if there's just like there's only so much intelligence in heaven and he has to divvy it out and then I was Hey, there you are. I was just talking about you too. It was perfect timing. Yeah. Awesome. It was amazing. So, yeah, my hobby isn't thinking. My, uh... <laughs> so sorry. Didn't mean to disappoint you, but I'm sure you noticed the difference. <laughs> I like to play basketball and talk. Uh... <laughs> but thinking isn't directly related to my speaking. <laughs> anyway, uh... Um, this is my first book I ever wrote, and um, I agree with almost everything in this book. Uh, Bill wrote two chapters. <laughs> um, but I think you'll like it. It's called The Supernatural Ways of Royalty, and it's actually about my journey um, out of uh, a poverty mentality. Probably about two years ago, I was really struggling with something, and I went in to see Danny Silk, who's you know been my very close friend I, I led Danny to Christ and I'm sitting down with him and I'm telling him my struggles and he goes man there's a book you need to read it would really help you I said really he goes yeah it's that supernatural ways of royalty <laughs> and I, I was like what you're saying is I wrote something and I haven't become the message yet and he's like well I didn't say that but that would be true how many of you have not read this book you have not read this book Okay, let me just try this. How many of you have not read the Bible? Well, then, how could you be a Christian? Well, I'll tell you what. Good thing Jesus didn't come back before you read this book. You'd be reading those books left behind. <laughs> I'm going to write a book about when Jesus is coming back and put a date in it. 
Huh? You can co-author it with me, man. Huh? That would be awesome. I bet it sells a bunch until after the date. Anyway, um, here, honey, give that to somebody, would you? What, you don't like my wife? <laughs> Figure that out. There you go. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, I will. I'll force myself. This is called um, All Truth is Not Created Equal. And it um, actually uh, came from a dream that I had. And I shared this story uh, when I was here one time, I know. I don't think it was last time. But um, in this dream, I saw... Well, let me just say this. Have you ever had an experience that you try to explain with words, but it doesn't really adequately explain the experience? Because it didn't happen with words. It happened with an experience. Okay, so here you go. I'm going to try to explain in words what didn't come with words. It came with an experience. So um, I had this dream, and in this dream I saw, and this, this is where it gets kind of strange, but I saw words going across the screen, like on a ticker tape, like CNN ticker tape, and words like holy, powerful, godly, you know, the, and, and then I heard the Lord say, I'm giving you a new operating system. And when he said, I'm giving you a new operating system, it was shouted in the dream, I'm giving you a new operating system. And when he shouted that, words began to rain. like They fell like rain. It, 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 it's hard to explain. They fell like rain, but they were different sizes. Some words were small. Some words were larger. And, um, and they, were, they, were, uh, like, they were like 3D. And they were alive. And in the dream, I began to breathe the words in. And like the word courage. Like in the dream, I'd breathe in the word courage, and when I'd breathe in the word courage, I'd suddenly become courageous. And the Lord said, I'm about to pour out revelation on this generation that's been held in the, eon, uh, in the vaults from the eons of ages that even the angels themselves long to look into. And, um, and then uh, the dream changed, and I was holding... Um, we, Kathy and I were like, I don't know if it was an orphanage or like a daycare center or something, but there was little children around, and I was holding this uh, little child, and the child was kind of misbehaving or acting funny. But it, uh, and in the dream, I was like aware, like, this is not normal misbehavior. This is something strange. And I went to uh, touch the child's head, and when I did, there was a big chasm in his head. And I could look into it and see his brain. You know how these are, I understand. This is weird. And so I looked at his brain, and his brain was deformed. And, uh, and the Lord said to me, do you see these children? Do you know who these children are? I said, um, yeah, these are the children of God in the dream. He goes, yes, did you notice that their feet are fine? I go, yes. He said, they'll go anywhere I tell them to go. He said, did you notice that their hands were fine, normal? I said, yes. He said, they'll do anything I tell them to do. But he said, what did you see? I said, I saw that their brains were deformed. He said, that's why you need to be transformed. And, uh, and so um, I, I began to realize that, uh, well, let me just go back to the dream. I began to realize that a lot of people think this is the word of God. And how many know that the Bible is not always true? Well, what did the devil use in the wilderness in the mother of all battles against Jesus? 
the Word of God. The Word of God in the hands of the devil is not true. In fact, he wrote this way, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the Spirit and the Word that equal truth. So, you know, um, faith, hope, and love. Not all truth is created equal. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. So you know that faith and hope are true. But the greatest of these is love. You know, truth out of order is perversion. Perversion means the wrong version. Like if you take sex and you put it in marriage, that's hopefully how we all got here, right? It's, it's supposed to be beautiful. But as soon as you take the same act and move it outside of covenant, you have what? The wrong version. You have perversion. So God wants to give us an operating system that actually has His value. We know when I saw the words, some of the words were larger, some of the words were smaller. I began to realize that not all truth is created equal. And that, how many of you understand that, that wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives? How many of you understand that whenever you put submission above love, that you have a perversion? You have wives submitting to husbands that totally and completely abuse them, beat them. I'm not advocating divorce. I'm advocating the fact that truth has an order. And that when you take it out of order, you have perversion. And that truth is alive. Hebrews says that, that the Word of God is what? Living and what? Active, sharper than a two-edged sword. You know you can destroy every Bible that's ever been uh, written, you know, that's ever been created, that's on the, you know, you get the idea. You can destroy every Bible on the, your computer program. You can destroy every Bible ever written, and you know you still wouldn't destroy the Word of God. Because the Word of God was before the world was ever created, and it'll be here long after the world is gone. So some people read this, and they're like, they think they have the Word of God. But the truth is, is the Word of God is living and active. It's not paper. It's not print. Like, this is, like, a good example is, like, when I first went, came to Bethel, one of my jobs was to pick up the conference speakers. But I didn't know any of them. So... I would, they would take the brochure like Bobby Connors, and they would circle Bobby Connors. And they'd say, this is the person you're picking up at the airport. And I'd take that brochure, and I'd put it in the front seat. Now, how many of you know I didn't have Bobby Connors in the front seat? I had a picture of Bobby Connors. So that when I see him, I could pick him up. See, a lot of people are walking around with a picture, and they think they picked him up. If knowing the Bible and knowing God were synonymous, the Pharisees would have rocked. <laughs> I'm not advocating not knowing the God, not knowing God. I'm saying that the Word of God is living and active. And what I'm getting at is this. In the dream, when I would breathe in the Word, I would become. I would become, like, I breathe in the word courage, and suddenly I become courageous. And I'd like to propose to you that every word in here is an invitation to an experience. Somebody once said, you know, if you, if you base your relationship with God on experience, you could be deceived. That's true. But if you read this book and don't have an experience, you are deceived. The goal of the book is not for you to memorize the book, but to get to know the author. <laughs> it's really weird when you make the book the goal instead of you make the author the goal. It's just a good... I'm right about that, too. <laughs> See, thought about it, and I'm, I'm right about it again. So, <laughs> you know, 
this may surprise you, but the devil knows the Bible. Usually, when he attacks a Christian, he doesn't go, I'm the devil. (laughs) I'm the person that your mother warned you about, and I'm about to deceive you. How many of you have realized that most cults, have you ever talked to a cult member, you get to know them, and they tell you what they believe, and it's like really close to what you believe? And you're like, those are the key scriptures we use. But it's, it's things, most cults use the Bible, and they shout things that God whispers. And they whisper things that God shouts. And it's usually not what they believe, but the application and their emphasis. And when you sit down with them, you don't even know if you're... Now you think, well, I must be a cult member too, because I believe almost everything they just said. How many of you ever encountered someone like that and you're like, wait a second, isn't that what we believe? <laughs> so, well, I guess Bethel's a cult now anyway, according to the internet. But, do you guys like those? My wife says I cannot do this. Listen, if I was home, I'm in charge. I'll just throw this thing up to you. Here. Be fruitful and multiply. All right. <laughs> awesome. May all your camels prosper. Okay. Let's. Uh, we should pray. Can we pray? Did you guys all get prophetic words that you're coming in? Awesome. Are they good? That's good. Did you give them money? Oh, there weren't prophets, huh? (laughs) Most of the church is a non-profit organization. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The good thing about starting here is it can only get better. So, Holy Spirit, we just thank you for what you're doing (laughs) here. And Lord, I just pray that you would convince these people that I am right (laughs) about these things. I pray that you'd open up their hearts and their minds, my heart and my mind. Lord, I pray that if I say something that isn't true, they would not remember it. (laughs) Amen. This morning we were talking about... Developing champions. And I want to turn to John 15 for a minute. And um, I actually like this chapter a lot. Actually, I like most all the chapters in the Bible. There's a few that I've crossed out some words I didn't like in there. (laughs) That hasn't worked out too good for me, actually. But um, sorry, I was actually kidding. I haven't. I really haven't crossed them out. I just don't read them. 
John 15, Jesus is uh, talking about, I'm the vine, you're the... I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 1, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Now, this, this is not really... I don't know what you think about these verses, but there's no encouragement in the first two verses. Because <laughs> you either get cut off or pruned. And neither one of those... Like, I personally am opposed to pain. How many of you are with me there... Uh, it seems like there's only two options here. Like, you can get cut off or you can get pruned. And both of those feel very harsh. You are already clean. The word there is pruned. You are cl- already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Everybody say, you can do nothing. Okay. You're like, I don't think I can do anything. It's like, you're right. You can do nothing. (laughs) If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. As a branch dries up and is gathered and cast into the fire and they are burned. That feels very painful. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. I want to stop right there. I'd love to write a book called Wishful Thinking. It says, ask whatever you wish. How many of you have a wish? Dreams really do come true. You know that? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. I want to go on in just a minute, but I just want to clarify what he's saying here, because I think this is really powerful. Like, wouldn't you like to get whatever you wish? Like, God wants to so renew your mind, he can do your will. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could get anything you wish? Like, I just wish I had a Corvette. It's like, whew, there it is. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> and he said, and when the prerequisite is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And I think it's important for us to realize, like, the context here, you know, we're talking about developing champions. The context here is... That you're, that you're the, he's the vine, we're, we're the branches, and that you can either be cut off or you can be pruned. And I remember my Uncle Sally had a uh, vineyard, and of course I was a kid, I was 15, 16 years old. I didn't really care about vineyards in those days. And, but I remember walking through the vineyard, and there would be, how many of you have ever actually seen a real live vineyard? Yeah, okay. You ever walk through a vineyard and um, you see that there's a grapevine and then if you walk through a vineyard that hasn't been taken care of for a while or has you know, gone through a season where it hasn't been pruned, what do you see? Like you see this vine that has you know, leaves and uh, grapes on it in certain seasons and then you see what? From there on, sticks, right? And what they, if, you let a, if you let a vine grow without pruning it, what it does is it puts all of its energy into creating branches with no leaves and no grapes on it. And pretty soon, it's, it, will, it, will, it will create so much energy in extending the branch that it will actually produce no fruit. And that's what happens to our lives when we get overextended. We begin to create wood with no fruit. And sometimes we get in this culture where it's whoever has the longest branch wins. 
And so the Lord cuts back. He, he prunes us. But he makes this statement. He says, now you are clean because of the word. The word clean there is actually the same word prune. Now you are prune by the word that I spoke to you. Now, the next verse, or a couple of verses later, he said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, and ask whatever you wish. Now, the context isn't, the context isn't like, okay, if you memorize the Bible then you can have whatever you want. Listen, that's not the context. The word he's talking about is the word that prunes you. If you are a person who can be pruned, then you can ask what... Listen, if you listen to my word, I will listen to your word. If you listen to my wishes, I will listen to your wishes. So the context is, is that if you are the kind of person who can be pruned, if you can be disciplined, then you can ask whatever you wish... And I can trust you with your wishes because you have allowed me to clean you. You've allowed me to prune you with this, with this word. Are you with me? I turned on the television in a, a hotel room one day and there was a... a I, I don't really watch Christian TV. I'm, I just be really clear. I'm not opposed to it. But they don't really have like Braveheart on those kind of things. And so, you know, if, if nobody dies on there or... Something I'm like, I'm sorry, it doesn't keep my interest very well. I guess I'm an Old Testament TV watcher. But I turned on the television in in a, a hotel room and it popped up to a guy who was preaching, which I really rarely ever watch preaching. I don't even watch mine. I really don't. It makes me mad. I'm like, they make me look fat on there. I'm so... I turned on the television, and just as I turned the television on, the preacher was saying, instruction means structures inside of you. Just as I turned it on, just as the TV came on, it says, he said, instruction means structures inside of you. And I don't know what it was. Well, I know it was the Lord, but I immediately turned the TV off. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> And I, and I sat there for a minute, and I thought, that was the word of the Lord. And I, and I did this word study, and I'm, I'm not going to do it right now. I, I have notes for it. But I did this word study right then. I got my computer out, and I looked up the word instruction, and I looked up the word teaching. And I was shocked, and with a couple of exceptions, in, in the New American Standard, the word instruction comes from the word discipline, reproof, and correction. And the word teaching comes from um, uh, informing, to teach, to, to, give, uh, to give information. Now, there was a couple of exceptions in there. And I started to have this thought that you know, Jesus said this. He said, the sower went out to sow seed. And he sowed some seed on, you know, different ground. You remember all that? And, and he said the seed was the word of God. And the word seed is the word sperma. Are you following me? So he said that the seed fell on different ground. And, you know, the, the thorns grew up and choked it out. And, then, and one of the places where the seed fell was on hard ground. And, I mean, on, uh, on, yeah, on hard ground. And, the, and, it's, uh, and Jesus said this that because the man had no root in himself, 
that the devil came and stole the word. And one day I was reading that, I'm like, listen, what? the seed is the word of God, and the guy doesn't have any root in himself. What does that mean? And, I, and Paul said this, he said, I, I was laboring until Christ was formed in you. Okay, how did Paul labor? I'm like, okay, Paul preached. And when Paul preached, he released the word of God, and the word of God is sperm. Are you following me? We were in Hawaii, and we, my wife, like, she's like a horticulturist, you know? Our house looks like a stinking jungle. <laughs> like, she talks to the plants, and they talk back to her. I like plastic plants, like they look green all the time, and she says they're false prophets. So the first time we went to Hawaii, we landed on the island, and we get to rent a car, and we're driving off the, uh, you know, driving out of the airport, and she says, stop, stop. So I thought, well, what's wrong? Just see that plant right there? See that tree? This is like a huge tree about the size of this auditorium. I go, yeah, she goes, that's the plant we have in our bathroom. <laughs> and we drive a little further, and she goes, wait, wait, well, stop, pull over. I said, what? You see that? You see that bush? And it was like this huge bush. Yeah, that's the plant we have in our kitchen. And we did that for a little while until I just kept going. And what I realized is there's no such thing as an indoor plant. There are only plants that are created for a different environment. And if you want them to grow, you have to produce an artificial environment so that they can grow. And what I realized is God, when he, listen, teaching is in formation. Formations inside of you. In formation. But in order to incubate information that's coming from another dimension... See, the Word of God is the seed of God. It's the sperm of God. And I think that it's coming from another realm. And in order for you to be able to gestate that and Christ to be formed in you, you need an artificial, you need a structure, you need instruction so that you can incubate information. And I think that's why Jesus called us disciples and not Christians. Because part of creating champions is realizing that people have to receive instruction before they can receive information. Instruction means means reproof, correction, chastisement. And what I'm getting at is this. A lot of people receive information, but it actually never becomes, it never grows in them because they have no root in themselves. And root means that you're able, see, if if you can't receive discipline, you're a bastard. And I'm telling you that the church is moving from a global orphanage to a family. And, the, and one of the manifestations is, is that people can actually receive discipline. I'm not talking about getting beat up. I'm not talking about control or you know, any of the things that those words can inspire in us. But being in a family means that you can receive correction, discipline, reproof. And I begin to realize something that in our school of ministry, we have, you, you have to be on class on time. Now we have this computer program written so that if you miss, you know, three days, if you, if you were late three days, it counts as an absent. If you're absent, I forget how many days, you're out of school. Like, you behave yourself out of school. 
We don't kick you out of school. You behave yourself out of school. Are you following me? But I realize this, is that the fact that you have to read a book, the fact that you have to be at class on time, the fact that there are certain things that you have to do, follow me, it's not that being on time or reading the book. I understand reading the book should be awesome. I'm talking about the fact that you have to. Are you with me? The fact that you give yourself, in other words, someone can tell you to do something and you have to do it. That is creating... That is creating infrastructure, instruction, so that you can receive information. Over my life, and probably like everybody that's been a Christian a long time, you know, I've mentored and discipled, uh, uh, coached. I mean, I mean, some of these words feel interchangeable, and I'm sure there's different dimensions to it. But I, I've had a lot of people in my life that I have personally poured my life into. I had... Um, two, two of the people that I've given the most time to in my life in our little town I better not give their names but I have two people that I absolutely poured my life into I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and one of the young men I, um, I didn't actually lead him to the Lord I met him a month after he received Christ and he, uh, we would meet at 6 o'clock, three times in the morning, and we would pray before he would go to, go to school. And he became the leader of our campus ministry and has an incredible campus ministry. He became my assistant. And uh, it's just, I, I've just, I just poured my life into him. He was at, probably at my house five days out of seven for many years. Um, you know, I, I married him. Um, I led his wife to Christ before they were married. I mean, just like this, these, these are people... These aren't casual acquaintances or people I met with once a week. I mean, I literally, they grew up with my kids, if you will. That guy hates my guts today. He won't speak to me. And he, he doesn't follow Christ, and he actually uh, considers himself an atheist. I have another girl who, just this amazing girl, I used to go to this, this little town called Lewiston, 900 people, and the Lord told me, I want you to go to this town. I want you to pray over it until I tell you. And I'm going to give you this city. Now, it's just a little city of 900 people. And I said, well, what do I do? He said, I just want you to pray. I want you to go there at 10 o'clock on Sunday night. I don't want you to talk to anybody. I don't want you to let anyone know you're doing anything spiritual. I just want you to walk and pray. I said, how long? He said, "Till I tell you to stop. And I, so I did that. And it turned out I did that for a year. And most of the time by myself. And this one gal, I'll just call her Joan. Her name wasn't Joan. This only one person walked with me every Sunday. It was Joan. I led Joan to the Lord, and Joan was a radical believer. She led her dad to Christ, who was one of the leaders of our small town. She led her mom to Christ. I mean, this girl was on fire. I remember how innocent she had never read the Bible in her life. And I remember about her third youth group meeting. She's sitting in a youth, in youth group, and I'm teaching on the circumcision of the heart. And she doesn't know what the word circumcision is. And this is in youth group. And she's like, I have a question. I'm like, what is it, Joan? She's like, what does the word circumcision mean? I'm like, later. We're going to talk about that later. <laughs> that girl no longer walks with God, and she's an atheist. And, you know... <clears throat> 
can think of many more people like that that I poured my life into that don't walk with God today. And I was thinking, I do this sometimes, you know, I just pray for them. And uh, sometimes I just get overcome with, I just can't, you know, you just think, well, I mean, if you're anything like me, I think, well, I wonder, I should have done something differently. You know, do you ever go, go there like, maybe I should have, would have, maybe if I would have done it this way, maybe, you know, because none of those people did I disciple perfectly. And none of them, you know, we raised four kids. I mean, we didn't do everything perfectly. And it's just, it's just easy to think if we would have done that differently, if we would have had that experience, if I would have known about this, you know, maybe they'd be walking with God today. But one day I was, right after that, I had that encounter with that TV set about the thing about instruction, I was uh, just thinking about these people, and not just those two, but about eight or ten of them that I had really, really poured my life into when I was not so busy. And just people that would almost live with us. And probably three-quarters of those people are not walking with God today. And, you know, some of them are not just not walking with God. Like, these two are atheists. And, I mean, they've seen the power of God. They've seen, I mean, the, the, the guy I told you about, in 1998, his daughter, of course, I told you I married husband and wife, Married them, powerful believers, led my junior high youth group, had two daughters. During the renewal, the early days of the renewal, like the first year, his little daughter, like six years old, got hit with the power of God in a meeting, and she literally went into a trance. I carried her to the car, and that little girl stayed in the trance for eight hours. And when she woke up, she was telling her parents that she went to heaven. And she was, I mean, it was powerful. I'm telling you, like, these are not people who haven't had an encounter that don't believe in God. And I started to think through, like, okay, so I have these eight people, you know, these, I'm thinking about, like, these seven or eight people that, that I really poured my heart in. And I'm like, okay, what did, do these eight people have anything in common? Because, okay, I, there, some of them were girls, some of them were guys, they came from different backgrounds, some from broken homes, from, some from good homes. And I'm trying to think, was there any common denominator? Like, was there anything that, was there any common thread that I could actually say, knowing these people really, you know, really, really well, was there any common thread amongst those eight people that no longer walk with God? And I, and I just laid in bed one night, and I was just thinking about it, and I started thinking about incidents with those eight, you know, which lasted years. I was with them for years. And I, I, I had this thought that night. None of those eight people could ever receive correction. None of them. I mean, they were, they were wonderful people. Joan, the girl I'm calling Joan, had a wonderful, amazing, uh, she was uh, this amazing person. But when I would go, hey, that wasn't right, there would be 48 reasons why it wasn't their fault. And I look back and I think that. Now, I don't know if I would have understood then if it would have made a difference. But I do understand one thing now. Their inability to receive correction, and I was never a harsh person. I want, I'm not, you understand that some of us came out of movements, I didn't, that were harsh. I'm not talking about harsh people. I'm not talking about beating people up. I'm just talking about the simple ability to father someone, to mother someone, and say, hey, what you did there, that wasn't good. Like, that wasn't right. When I would talk to Joan, and I'll call him John, when I would talk to Joe and John, it was never their fault. Nothing was ever their fault. 
And I can remember having long talks with John. Like, dude, you don't, you're not getting it. Like, he had a real problem with his anger. It, oh, it was always someone else's fault. And I would say to him, John, people don't make you angry. Angry is in you. <laughs> trials, trials do not create you. They reveal you. And I would have these conversations with him. I, I, but I, I, I guess maybe I'm overdoing it this morning but, or this afternoon, but I'm just, I'm just so aware that part of raising up champions is that people have to realize that discipline is a part of being a son. And discipline is a part of being a champion. And discipline is a part of being impregnated with, the, with information, information. And if you can't receive discipline, you can be in the greatest, you know, there's conference junkies, you're probably in this room. You go from conference to conference and nothing ever changes, and you don't know why. And to be totally frank about it, a lot of you are conference junkies, but you're not sons. You're not daughters. The other day, one of my students, I was teaching on fatherhood. This is probably two weeks ago. And the next week... I started out with a question and answer. And of course, the first question, a young man stood up and he said, how do I ha- find a father? I said, well, first you've got to be a son. Because it's hard to father a bastard. You've got to be a son. And, he, and tears filled up in his eyes. And he said, I don't know anything about that. I said, yeah, that's why you haven't found a father. Because fathers father sons and daughters. And so he said, can you tell me how to be a son? And I began to talk to him about the ability to be disciplined, the ability to be talked to, the ability to be... You, you, you understand where I'm going. I don't think I need to belabor the point. But, but there's something about... We live, you know, we've, in America, we've made independence of God. It's so strange to me. Like you, People will go to church... No, I'm sorry. They'll go to work... And at the time their boss tells them to be there, they'll take lunch when the boss tells them to take lunch. They'll wear whatever uniform the, the, the company requires. They'll leave when the boss tells them to go. They'll, they'll do, for those eight hours or ten or whatever, they'll do whatever the boss tells them to do. And then they come to church and you ask them, you know, you think you could help in children's church? And you're like, <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. Jesus is my shepherd. I'm like, Crafty, why don't you try that at work and see how long that works out for you? And it's, what, it, what bothers me is that people will do for money what they won't do for love. I've never heard one person tell their boss, I was raised in the shepherding movement, and so, you know, I'm having a little problem doing what I'm told. Okay? I just don't, like, that control thing doesn't work for me, all right? So if you, if you want me to do something, you'll need to ask me, and I'll pray about it, and I'll let you know if God says it's all right. We ne- it, we will work for people who don't even know God and do everything it tells us and walk into church and we won't even move up three rows when the pastor asks us to. We can't be talking to me. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm serious. I'm serious. And they'll develop a whole theology to not listen to spiritual authority. But where is it in the Bible? I don't know. Where is it? You know, obey your boss in the Bible. I don't see you arguing that. Like, I don't see you arguing over... Hey, the Bible doesn't say I should be, that says masters and slaves, and I'm not a slave and he's not a master, so I can't find a verse for, you know, doing what he tells me. We know we can't do that because we wouldn't get paid. (laughs) It's like tithing. People come to me and, you know, this happens quite often. Do you believe in tithing? I say, before I answer the question, are you trying to, are you trying to pay less or more? 
Because the truth is, I've never had anyone ask that question who was trying to give more than 10%. It's like, I believe it's an Old Testament, you know, it's an Old Testament truth, and we're in the New Covenant. I'm like, I'm, okay, that's cool. But before I answer that question, well, you know, I really believe that tithing is an Old Testament principle, and it's not, you know, we're not under the law anymore. I'm like, hey, you know, before we go on and have this discussion, are you arguing for giving more or less? Because if you're arguing for giving more, I'm with you, dude. It's an Old Testament principle we shouldn't practice anymore. But if you're arguing over giving less, let's talk about the principle. Established 400 years before the law. Ratified by the law. Then ratified by Jesus and practiced in the early church. Now, do you want to talk about that? Because the only other option you have in the New Testament is to give it all. Well, we're a New Testament church. Well, they sold everything, and they listened to this. They didn't give it to the poor. They didn't do what they want with it. They gave it to the apostles. They laid it at their feet. Because in those days, they actually trusted people. So what was your question? Has any leader in here ever had a conversation over the tithe is the Old Testament principle who is trying to give more? Never. Never. I'm not saying there aren't people that give more that don't believe it, that it's a, you know, you understand. I'm simply saying I've never had anyone argue over it. I have never had anyone argue over it. It's like, like how cheap can you be if you tip the waitress 10% for crying out loud? I mean, God keeps your air on. God, you just... God loves these people, you know. You just got to love them. This ticks me out. I just had one of my students come to me. I don't believe in tithing. I'm like, awesome. Are you, tith- are you giving me more than 10%? Then it's cool. Don't believe in it. It's fine with me. We just need your money. God doesn't need your money. Yes, he does. That's how I get paid. I've never ate off a prayer. And it's the same people like, I want God to bless me. Would you, would you bless me? I'm like, you don't believe in tithing. You don't need me to pray for you. You've already, un- you've already undone anything I would do for you. I don't believe in tithing. Do you believe given it shall be given to you? Yeah, well, it starts with give. <laughs> it's really weird. People are like, do you believe that you can't outgive God? Yes. Then what are you arguing over 10% for? I love uh, T.D. Jakes. You guys love T.D. Jakes? It's the one, it's him and Joel Olstein. I just, I love them both. I don't preach like them at all. I wish I could, you know. Well, the Lord says, I mean, Joel Olstein is like, he's killing you softly. You don't even know it. People are like, he doesn't do correction, he doesn't do harsh words. No, he's killing you softly. He's the kind of guy, you don't even know that you're dead until you bleed to death when you get home. And T.D. Jakes is preaching on tithing, and he's got a bucket of dimes. I don't know if you saw this one. He's got a bucket of dimes, and he's throwing the dimes. You know, T.D. Jakes is the only guy I know that could have one point and talk for an hour. And you're mesmerized. You're like, and he's got, he's got a bucket of dimes, and he's throwing them in. You know, he's got a huge church, and he's throwing them in the audience, and he goes, you can be partners with God for one dime. 
for 10 cents, you can be a partner with God. I'm like, that's what I believe right there. I wish he was throwing quarters. That would have really messed people up. (laughs) Silver dollars. Anyway, let's go on. So, how am I doing for time? Oh, I got a little timer up there. Awesome. We're going to get one of those in a church for Bill. Um, (laughs) Verse 15. Uh, let's just do verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this. He lay down his life for his friends. You know, it's awesome. It says, no greater love has, is this. Is there? No, let's just do it right. <laughs> greater love has no one than this. And he lay down his life for his friends. It's awesome, you know, but we live in a world where, you know, we lay down our friends for our life. Verse 14, you're my friends if you do what I command you. I like that part. You're my friends if you do what I command you. It's, it's, it's the you know, part two of if you abide in me, my word abides in you. He's not talking about the Bible. I mean, obviously, it, it's, it's got to be rooted in there. But he's talking about you being able to receive the pruning. Okay, and here's the key verse. No longer do I call you slaves. For a slave does not know. Everybody say, a slave does not know. What his master is doing. Say that. But I have called you friends for all things. Everybody say, all things. For all things I've heard from the Father. I've made known to you. See, Jesus said, I don't call you slaves anymore. Okay, let's make sure we put that in context. I don't call you slaves anymore because you were pruned by my word and you've kept my commandments. So now I call you friend. What's the ramification of moving from slaves to friend? A slave does not know what his master is doing. The highest level, see, the, high, the highest core value in slavery is obedience. I do what I'm told. And I understand that there's a level of slavery that we... I mean, we are slaves to Christ. Everybody starts as a slave to Christ. Paul said, I'm no longer slaves to sin, but I'm a slave to Christ, right? So we start as slaves. But the, the goal is to move from slaves to friendship to matrimony. That's the goal. And so I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I'd like to propose to you that Revelation is not actually supposed to be part of the laborious labor of study, but it's actually the manifestation of friendship. In other words, how do you get all this revelation? How many hours do you study? No, no. No, revelation comes from friendship. All things I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. Otherwise, the highest level of relationship becomes being led by the Spirit. You're like, okay, I just said that. See, being led by, if you're not led by the Spirit, then you're not a son of God, right? But what happens when you have the mind of Christ? Then you begin to do things that you haven't even told to do. Listen, how many of you have raised teenagers? This will, okay, this will work. If you tell your son to cut the lawn, and you come home that evening, and the lawn's cut, what's that called? A miracle. It's called a miracle. 
I had two boys. I had a brand new Honda lawnmower, and we had a lawn that probably was half the, the third the size of this stage. And they managed to figure out how to break the pool start cord, like about every other week. Yeah, in the name of whatever. My youngest son, he would, I, he would take the garbage out. He'd take the garbage out. Now, if he got the garbage can all the way out, that was amazing. And rarely did he ever get it back in the house. But if I say, son, would you cut the lawn and take the garbage out? And he does it. That's amazing, right? Especially if he's a teenager. It's like brain dead and still got something done. I mean, it's, it was Mark Twain who said, I couldn't believe how stupid my father was when I was 16. I couldn't really... He said, I, I, it's amazing how much the old man learned by the time I was 22. <laughs> so that's amazing. You're, you say to your son or your daughter, you know, take out the garbage and cut the lawn. And you come home and they actually took out the garbage and cut the lawn. It's like, that's awesome. Led by the Spirit. But what would happen if you came home one day and you didn't say anything and they cut the lawn and took out the garbage? (laughs) You're all like, I don't know what that would feel like. I've never had that happen before. I mean, outside of being miraculous, that would be a whole other level. And he said, son, did you take out the garbage and cut the lawn? I mean, do you need money? I mean, usually the answer is yes. I mean, I understand it, but even that, it's like, what do you need? You need the car here. You want to buy a Corvette? You can have it. But I mean, if he said, no, Dad, I just, you know what? I know that you're like, you, you like the yard to be nice. And, you know, I just, I just really was thinking about you and. I decided to cut the lawn. I mean, it would take me a few months to really believe that that was that here, but but he's not doing what he's told. He's watching over my heart. See, when you're a slave, the highest level of life is being led by the Spirit. I did what I was told. The Holy Spirit told me, see that man in blue? He's got that, you know, you're going to go do this and you're going to tell him what to do. Wow, I've got a testimony. It's awesome. Those are awesome testimonies. I'm not playing them down, but there is another level. The other level is that I begin to think like God. I begin to get in his heart, and I'm giving him things he never asked for. I begin to dream with God. Are you following me? There there is another level. I was thinking about the tabernacle of David in in Acts uh, 15. He says... You know, in the last days, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. I will wall up its ruins. I will raise up its breaches that all of mankind might seek the Lord. And that's an amazing verse. It's really amazing when you realize that when David built the tabernacle, it was illegal. No, no. It wasn't just illegal like the law said it was illegal. It was like the law said it was illegal. <laughs> the book. Like the, the Bible. See, the, the tabernacle of Moses was actually God's idea. Remember, he went up on the mountain. God told him exactly how to build it. Are you following me? You think I'm crazy? God said, this is, who, this is how it would be built. This is the furniture in it. This is who will build it. This is the colors. Everything, right? He gave him everything. It's like, it's, like, it's like chapters long. 
And God said, this is what you'll do. And, you know, they had to tie a, a rope around the priest because only one the priest, a high priest, could only come in once a year to the Holy of Holies into God's presence. And if, if God didn't like him or, or he sweat or whatever, God killed him and they couldn't go in to get him, so they dragged his butt out of there with a rope. And then David gets this idea. Tabernacle Moses on one side of town. David goes, we need the presence of God. And he gets the ark. And you know the story. He gets the ark and, and, and he puts it on a cart, you know, which is actually big wheels and boards. You didn't get that, did you? The presence of God is not supposed to be carried on big wheels and boards. It's supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. And so David's trying to get the ark into the into the city of David, and, you know, Uriah, I think it was, Uzziah, reaches out, touches the ark, God kills him, David's upset, takes her to Obed-Edom's house, everything, uh, Obed-Edom's house prospers, David's like, I need to get the ark there. Cause the, you know, the Philistines to have hemorrhoids. It's a serious situation. It's a pain in the butt. And so they finally get the ark there, and David sets up a tent made of porpoise skins, one room, and he tells the Levitical priest, you know, go in before the ark and minister to the Lord 24 hours a day. I can imagine the first priest is like, you know, Levi, you can go in there first. Oh, no, 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 Jacob, it's you. It's all you. Because because what they were doing, the only book they had said, if you do this, you're going to die. And people already died trying to get it there. And David's like, we're going to have 24-hour worship, and we're going to have all the priests come in all the time and minister to the Lord 24 hours a day. (laughs) You can imagine, the first few days were probably like really a lot of anxiety. Especially after like guy dies trying to get it there. David, and and then in Acts 15... God goes, in the last days, I'm going to restore the tabernacle. And if you know the Old Testament, you're like, it's going to be the tabernacle of Moses, which is God's idea. But God goes, no, I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David wasn't God's idea. It was David's idea, and it was illegal, according to the Bible, in the days he built it. (laughs) How did he get away with that? I don't have the answer. What are you looking at me like that for? (laughs) Ask Graham. Graham thinks for a hobby. Graham will know. You guys should have died. And then God goes, you know, David, I like your ideas so much better than mine. I'm going to restore the tabernacle of David. It's almost like God saying, I, I know I told him not to do it, but isn't he cute? <laughs> He's a man after my heart. I'm like, yeah, well, he doesn't know the book very well. I, lo- I love, you know, like Jesus knows how to handle women. He's at a wedding, right? 
and they run out of wine. And Mary, his mother, says, Jesus, they're out of wine. I mean, the guy's 30, okay? He ain't 15. And Jesus said, what does that have to do with me? It's not my time. She turns and says, do whatever he says, do it. I already said I'm not making wine. (laughs) Mom, listen, I'm not making wine. I said, oh, honey, you don't mean that. He'll make it for you. He should have turned and said, I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man. (laughs) Oh, honey, I'm not a woman. I'm your mother. Now make wine. My question is, how does she know that he made wine unless he was doing it at home? imagine you grow up with Jesus in your home? Ladies, wouldn't it rock? You're like, I'll just take one slice of bread. We have Jesus at home. <laughs> he had to be making wine at home, or she would have no idea. It says it's his first public miracle, but what was happening at the house? That's amazing. And it says, when the waiter drank the wine, tasted the wine, he goes, well, most people serve the, the good wine first, and then they leave the bad wine for later, you know, after people are drunk. I know, people, I know, your Bible doesn't say that, because the translators could not handle saying drunk. No, Jesus wouldn't make wine for people who are drunk. Well, he did. I had someone in a church just about three months ago, took me aside, says, look, look at the word there. That word there is the word, you know, M-E, and I don't even, I don't know anything. I don't even hardly know English. I can't spell at all. I spell so bad when I write, the, you know, I, I use spell check and it goes, say what? Do you want to add this to your dictionary? <laughs> Dude, I got a whole dictionary in tongues. So he's up there and he's like, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I know Greek and that word doesn't mean drunk. I'm like, well, okay, so let's just think through this, okay? It doesn't mean drunk. So does it make sense that the waiter said, well, most people serve the really great grape juice first and after people are fully drunken, then they serve the crummy grape juice. Does that make sense to you? No, no, it doesn't because people don't care what they're drinking when they're drunk. Well, Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, he did. Jesus turns to his disciples the night he's betrayed. He says, get swords. Sell your coats and get swords. You know the story. We don't know who got the second one, but we know who got the first one. Peter. And I just realized, I think it's in the book of Luke, Whoever got the second one asked Jesus when they got attacked, should we use the sword? But Peter wasn't in on that conversation either. (laughs) So Jesus says, get sword. Just picture this. Sell your coats and get swords because it's important that I'm numbered among thieves. Which isn't encouraging if you've got a sword. And so a few hours later or two hours or however long it is, soldiers attack them. So Peter takes his sword out and cuts the guy's ear off. And, Peter, and Jesus all, Peter, what are you doing? 
what are you doing? He picks up the ear, and he's like, Sir, I'm so sorry. Peter! Now, you know Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. He's a fisherman. Come on. It is true that a lot of people are cutting off people's ears with a sword. But Peter was aiming. You know Peter was aiming for the head. I think the guy just ducked it. I think it would have been awesome if he would have cut his head off. Don't you? Peter, what the heck? Sir, I'm so sorry. You lost your head. Peter! What? And you can imagine, Peter's like, you said... Did you say, get swords? John, he said get swords, right? Yeah, Peter. You said get swords. I never told you to use it. I mean, it never occurs to us that God would would create opportunities he doesn't want us to take. God planted two trees in the garden. God did. This is God's idea. It wasn't like God planted a tree and the devil's like, I think I'll plant a tree. God planted both trees. Good tree, bad tree. God's all, okay, see that tree I planted? Yeah, don't eat it. You got that? Okay, repeat, don't, don't. It's an operative word here, don't. See, religion cuts down the second tree and calls that sanctification. We take away people's opportunities and think we're helping them. It doesn't occur to us that the kingdom... That, see, the only way... The, it's, a, it's a kingdom of reward. The only way you get a reward for doing something right is to have the opportunity to do it wrong. The only way you can get a reward for not getting drunk is to have the opportunity. He's returning and is what? Reward is with him. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's really hard to be ready for the jungle when you train in the zoo. If we're going to train champions, we've got to give them choices. I I could get in lots of trouble here. We, our political agendas are all about cutting down the second tree. Can't do it now, can you? Now you're righteous. Oh, you figured out some other way to send? Well, yeah, we'll cut that one down too. Give me that sword, boy. Give me that sword. See, part of becoming God's friend is you have permission to think. That's funny because, you know, in most churches, when you do something wrong, we make a rule so that can never happen again. We're, not, we're keeping you safe. It's like, well, what are you going to do after the two hours on Sunday morning? <laughs> you, you, she's, 
People live in a little bubble, like your church is a little bubble, like nothing ever happens wrong. We have a perfect church with perfect people. No, you don't. You just have no trees and no swords and no wine. That's the problem. You've got grape juice. We would never serve wine for communion. People would be like, I'll take another. I love this church. I go there to take communion. I'll take another. If we're going to raise up champions, people have to be able to think. That means they have to be able to make choices. Think about it. Judas, it says, Judas was a thief. Two chapters later. And Judas was the treasurer. (laughs) Why would you make the treasurer? Why would you make the thief the treasurer? Okay, Judas, I know you're a thief, so here, take care of all the money, all right? <laughs> Have you ever thought through that? Like, why did Jesus make the treasure, the, the thief, the treasure? Well, I don't know. Do you have an answer for that one? Well, I know that Matthew 6, the only prayer Jesus gave us to pray was, lead us not into temptation, right? So, he, there's two reasons I can see that he would do that. first one is he wanted to show that what was in his heart and tempt him. But then he told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, so that doesn't make sense to me. The only other reason that he would is because he believed in people before they deserved it. See, I think that the greatest, that Jesus had faith for miracles, but the greatest miracle he had faith for was for people who didn't deserve it. And that the culture that he, that he created through believing, through faith, didn't just create miracles and wonders and signs and healings and deliverances and raisings of the raising of the dead. I think the greatest thing that Jesus did with his faith was he believed in people before they deserved it. And see, when you believe in people before they deserve it, see, if you create a culture where, you can, where Peter's, where there's going to be... Peters, there will be Judases. And what we do, as soon as we get a Judas, we're like, well, we'll change those rules. Yes, sir. Listen, if you're going to raise up world changers, see, the culture that creates 11 world changers causes one man to hang himself. If you don't give people enough rope to hang themselves, you won't have world changers. We create cultures that are so sterile. We've domesticated the lion of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't bite anybody. Oh, I know Jesus made a whip, but he didn't hit anybody. Well, how do you know? You think he sucked with the whip? I mean, everybody thinks, well, you know what? Jesus got a whip and chased out the money changers, but he didn't hit them. He just scared them. How do you know that? What if he did? Where'd you get that? Why are you bleeding? Jesus hit me. (laughs) Jesus hit you? Yeah. With a cat of nine tails that he went home and made. Premeditated. (laughs) We have domesticated God. We got him in his box like, well, this is how God acts. 
You know, people like, when the Toronto blessing, whatever you want to call it, people are falling down and doing crazy things, and, and then people are like, well, God wouldn't do that. Why do you know? See, First John says, when we see him, we'll be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. When we don't see him, see, when we see God, we become like him. But when we don't see him, he becomes like us. We have a God made in our image. And certainly if God was going to do anything, he'd do it to me first. Well, that can't be God because, well, I haven't experienced that. Oh, I see. You're the test center for all the cosmic, (laughs) angelic activity in the world. God's going to do it to you before he's going to do it to anyone. Therefore, if you haven't experienced it, it can't be God. Have you read the Bible? I mean, Ezekiel's flying through the air by his hair. He's like, well, that can't be God. (laughs) Can you imagine coming to church and a pastor starts to preach and all of a sudden, whoop, through the air. That can't be God. It was. Well, I think that that's the wrong spirit. Well, at least it's one. <laughs> okay, whatever. What's the point? I have one. <laughs> We've got to stop teaching people what to think and teach them how to think. Start giving people answers and start giving them problems. I love Jesus, you know. I love Jesus. Stop right there. I love Jesus. And I love the way Jesus interacted with people. He'd be like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. Like, everyone leaves. You know, he doesn't bother to stop and go, hey, wait, wait, wait. It was a metaphor. It was a metaphor. I mean, he would have got fired from our church like the first month. <laughs> How's your church growing? Oh, growing? <laughs> we have Jesus. <laughs> it's sort of day to day. People have a love-hate relationship with Jesus. And he turns to the disciples, are you leaving? They're like, where are we going? <laughs> I mean, like, where are we going to go? We already sold everything. Oh, no, we're with you. You have the words of life, John. That's ridiculous. Did you, do you realize that every time Jesus got 30 yards from his disciples, they argued? Seriously, they argued. And what did they argue about? Come on, everybody knows. It's in every single gospel it's recorded that they argued. About the same thing. What were they arguing about? Who was the greatest? Specifically argued about who is the greatest. I don't think they argued about who was the greatest before they met Jesus. There's something about being with Jesus that makes you understand that you were born to rock. The argument got so bad that Peter and John got the mother involved. Remember that? And the mother said, Can our son sit on your left and right hand in the kingdom? And the Bible says that when the rest of the disciples heard, their mother asked that, it says that they were indignant. You know why they were indignant? Because they didn't think about getting their mother involved. 
And of course, Jesus was very concerned about the boys arguing. So he rotated them on special occasions. So when he went to the Mount Transfiguration, go, okay, Peter, James, and John. And then, okay, we're going to raise this girl from the dead. So listen, you guys, Peter, James, and John, come again. And we're going to, we're going to, every time he did something special, listen, he knows they're arguing, right, over specifically who's the greatest. What does he do? He favors three people. Oh, that'll help. That breaks it right there. We're like, we just need to get along so the world will know that Jesus is alive. Jesus couldn't even get 12 guys to get along when he was with them. We have totally redefined the Bible. We have Americanized the Bible. And anything to do with what really happened. We don't like what really happened, so we retell the story. We have to create environments where they have the same fruit Jesus had. People need to be arguing about who's the greatest. Our people don't argue in our staff. Well, that's too bad. You probably have little people on your team. There's a great general who turned to his, to his sergeant and said, You know, little people have little problems and big people have big problems. I fear we have little problems. We've made getting along a God. If you surround yourself with little people, they'll get along because you've got your own slave trade going on. There's, 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 one, there's an easy way to like never have an argument in your marriage. Just have one person thinking and one person doing. My wife and I have never had an argument. That's too bad. That means one person's thinking. The symptoms of a culture where great people emerge is not kumbaya. Nice and clean. The Bible says where there's no oxen, the manger is clean, but much increase comes with the oxen. You know what's in the manger when the oxen are there? Crap. (laughs) And we keep doing it over and over. Let's go look at your manger. Oh, that's awesome. It's so beautiful. You're awesome. You know, the field is ugly, but the manger is beautiful. We keep bragging about how beautiful our mangers are. I mean, Jesus would even want to be born there. You can get that anyway. I thought it was pretty good. We have these little manger scenes at Christmas time that don't have anything to do with Jesus. You know, nice, clean... I've never seen a major scene that smelt like crap. They're not authentic. Can you imagine you buying a real manger scene? You're like, oh, that's going to be an outside toy. Jesus was born in a mess. And he created messes. And great people came out of messes. They didn't come out of nice, clean hotels. They didn't come out of zoos. Some of us are too organized. It's like we organized God right out of things. It's like, 
Well, let all things be done decently in order. That's fine. They have to be done first. (laughs) Wow, you guys are sure organized. God ever show up? Well, yeah, he shows up on the third Sunday at 1 o'clock. We have a small section of time for uh, 15 minutes. You kind of <laughs> have a God encounter right here. <laughs> yeah, we put it over on the side so that we don't scare the people. You know, Jesus doesn't want to scare people. You know that. Jesus doesn't scare people. He's, he's a shepherd, the good shepherd who doesn't scare people. Bible are you reading, dude? And then we wonder, like, where are our heroes? And most of the people who are transforming the world, they don't even come to church. You know why? Because they can't live in that box. I got six minutes. <laughs> We've got to create atmospheres that actually develop amazing people. We can't be afraid of messes. We can't be afraid of pain. Jesus said, that, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Nobody mourns in our church. If they do, they get talked out of it. Hey, we don't do pain here, okay? You're mourning like joy. The kingdom of God is... Not eat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. Do you see mourning in there? Okay, well, those are the only three words that describe the kingdom. Stop whining. We don't allow anybody to do pain. We're afraid of pain. We don't do pain. Well, if we let them do that, they might get hurt. Yeah, they might. They might get hurt. You learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. I was preaching last Sunday on women, empowering women. I was. was Very dangerous. That's very dangerous. Do you know that the curse over the serpent was that, and over the woman, over the serpent was, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her seed. It wasn't just her seed, it was and they put enmity between you and the woman, comma, and her seed. I never realized it. I thought it was all fulfilled in Jesus, but actually the devil's not against men. He's against women. The earth is against men. Remember, that's the curse over men. You'll till the ground, but it will yield thorns and thistles. So creation resists men, but the devil is resisting women. I'm not saying he's not resisting men, too. I'm just saying women at the spear point. That's why they've been oppressed. Religion always figures out some way to oppress women. You know, divine design was he made them male and female, and he told them both to take dominion. And after that, right, Genesis 3, the curse over the woman is, and your husband will rule over you. That was called the curse. I wonder why only half the population got released from it. Because, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he had a crown of thorns on his head. Why did he have a crown of thorns? Because what was the curse over man? 
You'll till the ground, but it will yield what? Thorns and thistles. So Jesus wore a crown of thorns when he was... I'm sorry for women. Yeah, was it, was it a mute church? Uh, and, and here's my point when I only have three minutes to make. My point is this, is that, is that I've never found a church that, that says, that actually keeps that part. Well, women shouldn't speak in the church. I'm like, well, your women speak. Well, they can't exercise authority or teach. Well, he's the guy who said that, said, the same breath, said women shouldn't talk. So why did you decide this part isn't for today, but this part is? Well, because, brother. <laughs> because. That's the answers your teenagers give. Why did you wreck the car? Because. Because. I was at a church recently, and I met with all their leaders, and they don't allow women to teach or exercise authority. I said, do they talk? He's like, well, yeah, they talk. I said, why do you let them do that? Paul said, don't do that. I was afraid they were going to go, we didn't see that scripture. Thanks for helping. (laughs) That's a revelation, brother. (laughs) It'll be a bummer to walk in the church the next week and they all have life tape on their face. I'm serious. Isn't it funny that women in the old covenant were not restricted from leadership, but in the new they are? Isn't it strange that in, in the world that we will vote for a woman for president, congress, mayor, but if she comes to the church, she, <laughs> she can't have any position of leadership. Well, that makes total sense, that in the world that's still under the curse, she can lead. But when she comes into the kingdom that's free from the curse, she's oppressed. Totally makes sense. I get it. That's the way it is, brother. Haven't you read 1 Corinthians 11? God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of every woman. That's true. So what did God do with Christ? He raised him up and seated him in heavenly places to give him a name that's better than every other name. What did Christ do with man? Raised him up and seated him with him. (laughs) What did we do with women? I'm in charge. Headship isn't dominance. I think the Lord is testing men. I mean, don't you think that covering is supposed to, like, empower people? 11 seconds. The Secret Service, when they protect the president, and there's someone, like when President Reagan got shot, the Secret Service people, did they run away when the shot started? No, they jumped on President Reagan to protect him. Why did they do that? Who's more important, the president or the Secret Service? You're like, oh, is this a pop quiz? (laughs) We're all equal. Kumbaya. (laughs) No, no, the president's more important, and everybody knows it because CIA will give their life for the more important person. Husbands, no... Submit yourselves to one another. Next line. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Lay down your life for her. Who's more important? (laughs) 
A woman is never commanded to lay down her life for her husband. Never. They're both commanded to submit to one another. Wife is commanded to lead the way. Husband's commanded to give up his life for his wife. Tell me who's a CIA, who's a secret service, and who's a president. Do you know that God formed man but fashioned woman? Look it up. It's two separate words. He formed man and fashioned woman. And they've been into fashion ever since. It's a true statement. We're talking about empowering culture. We're not just talking to the males in this room. That's right. And listen, man was made from dirt. Dirt. A woman was made from a rib. That is a, that's a highly developed substance that's better than dirt. We're going to develop an empowering culture. We've got to get the other half of our army involved. Some of you men that are clapping are scared to death and you know it. (laughs) Okay, honey, if I let you co-reign with me, what's that going to look like? (laughs) Peter said that wives are co-heirs of the same grace. And if you don't treat them like that, God won't answer your prayers. And he wrote that in an Afghanistan, pre-American invasion, Afghanistan culture, where a woman was a possession. And he said, if you don't treat her as a co-heir, God won't answer your prayers. That's a serious indictment. (laughs) That's what I believe. So, why don't you stand? I'm three minutes and 14 seconds over, sorry. Jesus loves you, ladies. Listen to your mother. Lord, we just pray right now that you would break off every bondage, every religious box that's keeping people from being amazing. That's keeping people from being totally and completely amazing. And from this conference, I just pray that world changers will arise. That will be a voice into this generation. That the greatest inventions, the greatest innovations, the greatest creativity would come from the people of God. Who, who have the creator inside of them, have the mind of Christ, the wisdom from another age, seated in heavenly places so they have eternal perspectives. Lord, let the greatest moves, the greatest movements in the world come from the church of Jesus Christ. Let it be so obvious that people are actually born again, that people, they rush the altars going, hey, Johnny went to church and didn't know God, and he came back smart. What'd you do to him? It'd be like body snatchers. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God comes in, kills the old man, and takes over the house. We're the grateful dead. Lord, we just pray right now that you would just release your wisdom and your power through your people. Amen. Thank you very much.